If you have a Bible with you this morning, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you don't have your own Bible with you, you can feel free to use the Bibles in the Purex in front of you. Uh, in those Bibles, you'll find 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on page 961. A few weeks ago, we finished a series that we had been going through on the book of Esther. And next week, we're going to be beginning a new series, which we're calling Sent. And in that series, we're going to be thinking about talking about how the Holy Spirit invades our lives and empowers us to go out and live as God's disciples, live as his sent people. And so for the past few weeks, we've been between these two series, and we've been using these weeks to reflect on the events that we would call Holy Week. So two weeks ago, we began by looking at the triumphal entry. We looked at a passage where we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem as a triumphant king and making this clear claim that he is the awaited Messiah. And then last week, Jason led us through looking at the beginning of this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, as we reflected on the resurrection and the events that followed the resurrection. And so this morning, we're going to stick in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to think this morning about the implications of the resurrection and what the resurrection means for how we live right now. Now, we're not going to go through the entire chapter. If you're there, you'll notice that there are a lot of verses left in chapter 15 that we haven't gone through, but we're going to focus in on a few shorter sections. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 23, verses 30 to 34, and then ending with verse 58. So let me take a minute and read those verses for us now, beginning with verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then jumping down to verse 30, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And finally, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's take a minute and pray as we begin to look at this passage this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us, that you have told us the true story that you call us to live by. We thank you that we gather again, again, we gather together again this morning in hope of the resurrection. And I pray that as we look at this passage this morning, that you would fill us with that hope, that you would help us to see how the cross has changed everything, how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection changes our lives. I pray that you would help us to see our experiences, 
those that we've already experienced, those that we look ahead to in light of your work on the cross. And I pray that you would use that to cause us to live as your sent people. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Each year in January, our youth ministry gathers together one evening to plan out our calendar for the rest of the year. We meet here in this building for several hours, and we talk about what we want to learn together that coming year. We talk about how we want to spend our time together getting closer to each other, and we talk about how we want to serve together. And for the past few years, those conversations have also included a discussion about how we want to spend our time in two separate groups. So a few times throughout the year, we now separate into a guys group and a girls group. And each of those groups gets to choose their own themes for the discussions. For the past several years, actually as long as we've done this, the guys seem to consistently choose to want to read through a book series together and then discuss how that book series reminds us of the story of scripture. And so we've gone through series in the past. We've gone through the Chronicles of Narnia, and we've gone through the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis. If you're not familiar with those series, both of them are allegories. So they are intentionally written to remind us of the story of Scripture. So when we read through those series, it was pretty easy when we gathered together to find different themes that we could highlight. There were times where it was even obvious that C.S. Lewis was writing about a very specific narrative from the Bible, so we could read that passage compare it to what he had written, and talk about what we could learn from it. So this year, once again, I actually thought maybe last year was going to be the last year of reading through a series of books, which if you don't know me, that would have delighted me. I'm not a big reader. I don't love reading. These kids make me read. Um, I thought we were done with it. That was not to be. So once again, they decided they wanted to read through a book series, and this year they decided that they wanted to read through the Lord of the Rings trilogy, or the Lord of the Rings series, rather. And when we voted on this, I had not previously read through those books. I had heard reference to those books throughout my life. I had heard many series, uh, sermon illustrations. I had even led a youth group uh, curriculum back at my church in New Jersey that used clips from the videos to make all of the illustrations throughout the entire series. So my assumption was that I'm walking into the same thing that I have already done in the past. These are going to be allegories. It'll be really easy to pick up on what Tolkien is referring to in scripture and there are just going to be some obvious themes that we're going to be talking about here. It was not until I began preparing for that first discussion that I realized that this was going to be a different year. Because as I prepared for that first discussion, I read the foreword, which is written by Tolkien. And in that foreword, he says, As for any inner meaning or message, it has in the intention of the author none. It is neither allegorical nor topical. And then he goes on to a more specific explanation of how what he's writing is not meant in any way to connect to current events that are going on while he's writing it. But then he concludes his thoughts by saying this, other arrangements could be devised according to the tastes or views of those who like allegory or topical reference. But I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations and always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. So as I read those lines, I realized that I had just agreed to spend our year reading through a series of stories that were written with no intent to tie them to any other stories, including scripture. And not only that, but they were written by an author who claims to cordially dislike allegory in all of its forms. It was at that moment that I realized this was going to be a little bit more of a challenge. So... 
Every couple of months, the guys gather to search for meaning in a story that was not intentionally written to connect to any other story. It wasn't intentionally written to remind us of God's story. And so far, we've done this twice. Each time, there have been plenty of themes that we could pull out of those stories. But it has been more challenging each of the times. But what we're doing as a group when we gather to look at the story is the same as what we each find ourselves doing as individuals and what we do in community together. We want to believe that there is meaning to our stories. We want to believe that there's something significant about our experiences. We want to believe there's something bigger than the monotony of our day-to-day lives. And we see this in many different ways in our lives. We see it when we find ourselves struggling to make a decision because we want to make sure that we make the right choice. We see it when we intentionally take time to share our stories with our family and friends. We want to believe that our lives have meaning. And in this passage that we're looking at this morning, Paul says that our lives have meaning because of the resurrection. He says that because Jesus died and rose again, defeating sin and death, our lives now have new significance. So let's look to this passage as we try to see this morning how Jesus' resurrection imparts meaning to our lives. Let's begin by looking at that final verse, at verse 58. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In this verse, Paul is beginning to wrap up his message to the church in Corinth. Chapter 16 is the final chapter of this book, and so in that chapter, he basically is just sharing his final thoughts, his closing greetings. So verse 58 is the transition from the message that he wants the church to hear into his final thoughts. And he uses this transition to encourage the Corinthians in their work. He tells them that in the Lord, their labor is not in vain. He reminds the Corinthians that because of the resurrection, their labor is important. And then how does he call them to respond to that information? He tells them to be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord. He tells the Corinthians that because of the resurrection, their work has meaning, so they should be unwavering in their commitment and in their effort that they put into their work. This past weekend, for those of you who don't follow sports, was the NFL draft. And so between Thursday evening and the end of the day yesterday, NFL teams selected hundreds of players from college to join their teams. And that entire process was televised. Now, I know that process was televised because I am one of the oddballs that likes watching as much of that process as possible. My wife, Christina, makes fun of me for it because essentially what it boils down to is hour after hour of commentators just reading a list of names. And not, that, not only that, but I don't watch college football, so it's a list of meaningless names to me. I don't know who any of these people are, and yet I still enjoy watching it to see how it plays out. And each year, as they go through this process, between picks, they talk about either the person who's just been selected, or sometimes they talk about people that they thought would have been selected by now who are still remaining, still waiting to hear their name called. And as they're talking about those people, they talk about, well, what might be the reason that this person hasn't been selected yet? Each year, there seems to be a handful of players who don't get selected as early as they thought because rumors start going around right before the draft about their work ethic, about their commitment to their sport. And so teams start to pass on them, thinking maybe they're not going to come and work hard. 
And even though I've never heard these names before, as soon as I hear that that might be why this person's being passed on, I start thinking, I really hope my team doesn't take this guy. I want my team to take players who are steadfast, immovable, and abounding in their preparation for the game. But if I'm being honest, that, that's not always the best way to describe how I prepare for my work. There may be many times in my life where I might be the person who doesn't get chosen because of questions about my commitment to my work. We often think of work as the thing that we have to do in order to get to the fun stuff. We do our work, but while we're doing our work, we're looking for shortcuts. We're counting down the minutes until we can put our work aside and do the things that we really want to do. Often we view our work as a meaningless, necessary evil that keeps us away from the real important stuff in life. But in this passage, Paul says that's not true of our work. He says that because of the resurrection, our work has meaning. And so we should be fully engaged and fully committed as we're doing our work. Now, that's not to say that there's no place for rest in our lives, because the Bible makes it very clear that rest is something that we're also called to. But our work is not just something to be dreaded and avoided at all costs, if possible. Paul challenges us to work all the more because of Jesus' victory on the cross. He says that because of the resurrection, we get to participate in God's plan for the redemption and renewal of all things. And our work is one of the ways that we get to participate in that plan. So we're called to invest fully in our work because the resurrection gives the meaning to our work. And now if we look at verses 30 to 34, we'll see another way that the resurrection brings meaning to our lives. Paul says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. In this passage, Paul is making it clear that there is a risk associated with serving Jesus. He says that he's in danger every hour. He says he dies every day. He even talks about fighting with beasts. Paul's saying that because of the resurrection, we have the opportunity to expose ourselves to meaningful risk for the sake of the gospel. Because of the resurrection, we're free to stop clinging to our sense of safety and security. And we can allow ourselves to face danger and trials as we serve Jesus. This past year, before we realized that we were going to go through a sermon series on the book of Esther, my community group decided to do a discussion series on this, the book of Esther. And we're continuing to make our way through that series. A couple weeks ago, we looked at chapter 7 together. And in chapter 7, Esther finally makes her request known to the king. And she draws attention to Haman's plot to have the Jews killed. And so as we looked at this passage, we talked about the risk that she takes in making her identity known to the king. And we talked about the risk she takes in speaking up on behalf of her people. And as we talked about how God used Esther's actions to deliver her people and the great risk associated with her actions, we also talked about what it would look like for us as individuals and us as a group to take risks, to bring change and to bring the gospel to our communities and families. And as we had that conversation, a few of us brought up the topic of choosing to live in the city and choosing to engage in community life 
in this neighborhood. Now, that's not to suggest that living in the city is all bad or that we only live here for the sake of serving Jesus. In fact, the conversation initially went in that direction because one person brought up that although many people see it as a sacrifice to live in the city, it's actually a lot of times really fun to live in the city, specifically in this neighborhood where we're surrounded by other members of this congregation and we know that we're often surrounded by people who share our beliefs. A lot of times living in this neighborhood in particular doesn't feel like much of a sacrifice or a risk for us. And so many pe- and there are so many people in our neighborhood who aren't even connected to City Church who also contribute to this being a great place to live. So most days, personally, I'm really happy to live here. But there are also moments in life where the risk of living in the city suddenly feels much more present. It may be that you wake up in the morning and you find that your car was rustled through over the night. And even if everything's still there, there's still the invasion of privacy that you feel. Or maybe it's finding that a package has been taken from your doorstep. And, of course, living in the city also means sometimes hearing shots fired nearby and wondering, was anyone hit? Will they ever catch whoever fired those shots? So living in the city is often enjoyable, but there are always moments where we're confronted with the risk of choosing to live here. And maybe for some of you, Living in the city is just never enjoyable for you. Maybe you find yourself living in an area where you're isolated from other believers. Maybe you find yourself constantly exposed to violence and wondering when you're going to be the victim of that violence. Maybe you already have been the victim of violence, and so there's nothing more that you would like than to be able to get away from the city as soon as you can. Although there are times where it's enjoyable, there are plenty of times where we feel the burden of living in the city and where it feels like a big risk. But Paul reminds us that in those moments where we feel the risk of living in the city, we're not called to flee that danger. We're not called to cling to our safety and security. But the resurrection gives us the courage to be able to face meaningful risk, to bring good news to a city that's suffering with us, and to serve our neighbors who are suffering alongside of us. Now, I'll admit that when I hear shots fired, when I feel the risk of living in the city, that's often not my first reaction. In fact, many of the times that I've heard shots, my first thought is, I'm done with this. I want to get out of here. I want to move somewhere where these things don't happen. But in those moments, I'm thankful that I have neighbors who choose to lean into the risk and try to improve the city instead of fleeing. In those moments, I need to be reminded by my brothers and sisters in this congregation who also choose to live in the city that God placed us here for exactly this reason. We need to be reminded that because of the resurrection, we are freed to take meaningful risks as we serve those around us and as we serve Jesus. And then if we look at verses 17 to 23, we'll see that the resurrection also gives us reason to hope in the future. Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. 
In my second year of college, I had the opportunity to take a trip with a few friends of mine to a Christian conference that was geared at college students. And while we were there, one of the speakers was talking about watching the TV show 24. He talked about watching that show with his wife, and in one of the older seasons, uh, I've only seen the first season, so I haven't seen the episodes he's talking about, but in one of the earlier seasons, there's a scene where the president's daughter is being held hostage, and Jack Bauer, who's the main character, is trying to figure out how he's going to save the president's daughter. And so he's trying to figure out, can he go in and save her on his own? And one of the other characters tells him, Jack, you can't go in by yourself. We have to wait for backup. There are too many terrorists in there. You'll never make it out on your own. But Jack responds, we don't have time to wait for backup. And he rushes in to go and get the president's daughter by himself. And in that moment, the speaker talked about wanting to yell at the screen, Jack, don't do it. But then before he yelled, he remembered that he actually was a little behind on the show. And actually, the show had already started a new season. He and his wife were watching a recording of a previous season. And not only that, but uh, the actor who plays Jack Bauer, Kiefer Sutherland, he had just read an article about him signing a contract to extend the show for three more seasons after the season that was already airing, that was one season beyond the episode he was watching. And suddenly it just sucked all the drama right out of the show in that moment because he knew from that information that no matter what happens in the next few minutes, Jack has to survive because Jack's coming back for season three and four and five and six. Now, what Paul is saying in this passage, he reminds us that the resurrection is our guarantee of a season three, a season four, five, six, five billion. Because Jesus is resurrected, we have hope for our own resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is proof that death does not have the final word. God is powerful enough to follow through on his promises to bring about redemption and renewal of all things. And that promise includes creating new life in us, even after this one. And so Paul says that if the resurrection isn't true, then our faith is futile and we're all dead. But he's actually just finished making a case for the truth and the significance of the resurrection. And then he goes on to do the same again. And he calls the resurrection the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, when he uses that word first fruits, he's talking about the first sample of a crop that is indicative of what the rest of the crop is going to be like. So Paul is saying that Jesus' resurrection gives us a picture of what we can expect from our own resurrection. Jesus' resurrection gives us hope of our new life. In Jesus' resurrection, we find meaningful hope for our future resurrection. Jesus' resurrection gives us reason to celebrate the hope we have and the promise of our resurrection. But maybe that seems like a strange conclusion based on what we've talked about this morning. I mean, we started off by talking about our labor. We talked about how our labor has meaning, so we should be steadfast and immovable in our work. We talked about how we're, dedicate, we're called to dedicate ourselves to our work and be abounding in the work of the Lord. And then we moved on to talk about how the resurrection frees us to take meaningful risk, to expose ourselves to danger. We talked about how the resurrection allows us to stop clinging to our safety and security and be willing to face risks. And then after talking about how we're called to our labor and we're called to be willing to face danger and risk, we come to the conclusion that somehow we're also supposed to celebrate. So maybe as you sit here this morning, you're wondering, well, how on earth are we supposed to celebrate in the midst of our labor and in the midst of our suffering? 
Maybe you're even feeling hopeless right now because you think of that combination of laboring, taking risks, facing danger, and it just seems overwhelming and exhausting to consider what life would look like. Maybe you wonder, how can we be called to labor, risk, and celebration? Well, first off, when we talk about celebration, we're not talking about clinging to a willful ignorance of the brokenness in the world. Living lives of celebration does not mean that we turn a blind eye to the tragedies around us. We've already admitted this morning that there are tragedies that happen in life, and when those tragedies happen, we take time to mourn them. In the midst of our celebration, there are plenty of times where we're forced to recognize the brokenness of the world, where we're forced to recognize that things are not the way that they were created to be, and we should grieve that brokenness as we come into contact with it. So living lives of celebration does not mean that we live lives where we're unaffected by tragedy. But what it does mean is that in the midst of tragedy, we find that we still have hope. And we get to cling to the promise that one day all things will be made new. Frederick Buchner, who was a writer and theologian, says, Resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing is never the last thing. What do you think of when you think of the worst thing? Maybe the first thing that comes to mind is some global tragedy from history. Maybe you think of the Holocaust or the genocide in Rwanda. Or maybe you think of some more recent global tragedy, like the bombings in churches in Sri Lanka last week. Maybe you think of the shootings in mosques in New Zealand a month ago. Maybe you think of something more personal, the loss of a close friend or a family member or maybe a divorce, or some traumatic experience that you've had that has seemed to change life forever. Whatever you're thinking of when you think of the worst thing, the resurrection means that that worst thing is not the last thing. It doesn't mean that we ignore the worst thing. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve the worst thing when it happens. It does not mean that your worst thing is not significant or not important. But the resurrection does mean that the worst thing is not the last thing. The worst thing does not have the final word. Yes, the worst thing is a tragedy. Yes, the worst thing is devastating. The worst thing can even seem like it's going to change life as we know it forever. But the worst thing is not the last thing. And that's why we celebrate. Because in the midst of the worst thing, we still have hope in the ending. We know that this is not how the story ends. And so we mourn the worst thing while also knowing that the story doesn't end right here. You may have heard that this past week a movie came out that came with some anticipation. Now, before I go into this, I will tell you I have not seen the movie. I have not read anything about the movie. So I promise I am not going to spoil anything. And if you have seen the movie, I also don't want anything to be spoiled for me. So please don't talk to me about what happens after the service. If you haven't figured out what I'm talking about, uh, this past week, the movie Avengers Endgame came to theaters. And this movie is the culmination of a series of 22 movies that started over 10 years ago. So this week, people have been flocking to the theaters to see how this saga ends. And aside from it just being a long series of movies that have been going on for over a decade, people are also excited to see the ending because one of the more recent movies did not have the happy ending that we've come to expect from superhero movies. So people have been waiting for months to find out how do they resolve this. 
We've been waiting in hopes that maybe the worst thing that happens in this previous movie is actually not true, or maybe there's a way for it to be undone. And this week, people have been leaping at the opportunity to find out if there really is any reason for hope in the story. Now, remember, I already said I do not want any spoilers. I don't think they're necessarily a good thing, but that's essentially what the resurrection does for us. It plays the spoiler for us. The resurrection is the guarantee of our good ending. It's the promise that no matter how many worst things we face in this life, our ending is guaranteed to be the best thing. Because the end is newness of life. The end is healing, wholeness. And while we wait for our good ending, we're invited to join in God's work to bring about healing and wholeness to creation around us. So the resurrection gives meaning to our work. Because of the resurrection, our labor is not just monotonous toiling. Our labor gives us the opportunity to participate in God's plan to make all things new. And the resurrection frees us to be willing to be exposed to meaningful risk. Now, that doesn't mean that we live reckless lives or that we expose ourselves to danger just for danger's sake. But it does mean that when we're exposed to risk, we don't have to fear because our good ending is already guaranteed. And the resurrection fills us with meaningful hope. It gives us reason to celebrate the hope that we have for our own eventual resurrection. Jesus' resurrection fills us with hope for our new life. A new life where we don't keep running into these worst things because all has been made new and all has been made right. We can celebrate this morning and throughout our lives because Jesus' resurrection gives new meaning to our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have saved us from the brokenness, that you promised that you're making all things new, and that you even deliver us from the monotony of day-to-day life. Thank you that you fill our lives with meaning, that you've invited us into a bigger story than our own. You call us into your story as your sons and daughters as your sent people. Father, I pray that for those of us who are here this morning feeling the weight of the worst things, I pray that you would lift our eyes to have hope for the best thing that we await. I pray that you would begin to create healing and wholeness in us now, even as we await the resurrection, even as we await your return. Father, I pray that you would give us a vision for what it looks like to live as people with hope. I pray that you would give us opportunities to spread hope to the people around us and that we would be willing to walk into situations that seem dangerous because we know that the reward of being able to welcome someone into your family is far greater than any risk that we face by doing so. Father, I pray that you would increase our trust in you, that you would increase our love for you, and that you would increase our understanding of your love for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.